Welcome to Behind the Axle. This is a podcast that will take a look at what is going on in the world of wheelchair rugby. We will take a look at the topics and issues that are of concern to the players, coaches, staffs, referees, and classifiers of our league from coast to coast. We hope that you will join me, Mike Klinowski, Dave Mengen, and Hall of Famer Chris Cook as we discuss what is going on in our great sport today. Hi, this is Mike Klinowski. I'm a wheelchair rugby coach. I coach the Chicago Bears. I'm also the secretary of the United States Quad Rugby Association. I'm joined by Dave Mengen and Chris Cook. Dave, tell us a little bit about yourself. I am an 18-year player, and I am the commissioner of the USQRA. And Chris? And I've been involved in the sport 30 years, uh, 27 as a player, Three more, actually five more as a coach. They kind of intertwined there. Um, three-time gold medalist, Team USA, and Hall of Fame member. Awesome. Great to have you guys. Um, we're going to be talking about a few topics today. First, we're going to talk about imports, yay or nay. Are they good for the league? Are they good for teams? We'll also talk about international classification. We'll talk about residency rules and how do we develop younger players uh, for international play throughout the league. So a bunch of really good topics here. Uh, Gentlemen, let's start off by talking about imports. So Chris, how about you tell us what an import is? Well, an import is essentially a player from another country who comes to play in the USQRA for a rostered team. Each team can only have one import. It costs $750 per season to do so. And that player often will be a high pointer or a player with a great deal of function. And the team sees it as an opportunity to either get to the next level or perhaps once they're at nationals to finish stronger than they would without that player. Well said, sir. So I guess the question is, is... Looking at this uh, from a big picture sort of view, what what does bringing an import do for the sport of wheelchair rugby? So what does it do on a global scale? I think on a global scale, it does a lot for the sport that it, it brings players from all around the world to the 44 teams of the US QRA, helps them develop with uh, more playing time, different coaches. It really elevates their game. Um, I think that we've seen a lot of growth in the last several years within within the sport, and we've seen it on the the highest levels, such as at Worlds and as at the Olympics. Uh, But what does it do for the teams that? um, What what does it do for the domestic teams here? What what is the cost here? Dave, what do you think? Well, I see I see both sides of this. Uh, You know, I look at uh, teams are definitely all the teams that are at the top at least have an import. They have somebody from some other country, generally from a top ten team, but not always. It makes a huge difference, and it teaches both that player and 
it also teaches people on the team things that the other player is bringing in from their own country. On the other side of that coin, you're also seeing uh, playing opportunity that people don't get. You're seeing uh, teams artificially inflated as far as their ability based on the fact that they have somebody from the outside. I think it's been a great thing to see the world get better. It makes the sport better at, at the international game. Uh, it's no fun to always just be beating somebody up. Um, but is it time for us to think about maybe not doing that or restricting it to teams that are not in the top 10? I don't know. What do you guys think? I think at this point, the cat is out of the bag and anything that we would have been concerned about giving away the USQRA's um, strategies, et cetera, et cetera, training with players that are already here at an elite level, that's that's over with. The teams that have the players that USQRA teams want, they're already at an elite level internationally. I'll just name a few. The Riley Bats or Chris Bond or Dice K or Shin or Jim Roberts, et cetera, et cetera. All those teams are top four in the world. And those players I just named have all played on USA teams in the past 10 years, for sure. So with all that said, I, like you, Dave, I have mixed emotions about it. I feel like we should be developing our own high pointers and not just bringing in somebody. However, when you bring somebody in, our players get to learn from them as well. And you have to play against them every practice. And that's, uh, that's very valuable. And then the other part of it is some uh, teams flat out don't have a place for that guy to come and stay, and they can't afford it. So is it fair? Well, maybe, maybe not. There's no salary cap in USQRA, and there's certainly um, – it's legal. So people are going to continue to do it. And I do think it's good for our sports exposure worldwide and internationally. Heck, I would love to be on ESPN someday. And this is going to help us get there, the higher level that we play with higher functioning players um, on the court. So I still think it's good. And yet, like you, I wouldn't be unhappy if they said, okay, nobody can do this anymore. We're just going to play U.S. Curie guys. Mike? I think the the thing I think about is when – imports come over that they don't always set up shop in in town with these teams and really work on developing the players it tends to be they get in their games that they they spend a few tournaments with these teams but it seems more like a mercenary sort of thing that they come in do their job win some games maybe get these guys in the top four for nationals and then go back to their their home country so I don't know how much development actually occurs out of it. I know from a small team uh, that we probably wouldn't bring in an import anytime soon. It, it could be that we're still in that D2 level, but I also think it takes away playing time from a lot of folks that are developing as high pointers or, or low pointers. I mean, there's some great low pointers out there. To give an example, uh, we had a first-year team come together last year, California Storm. And we had seven players. That's it. And we did bring in an import. We brought in Class 2 Giovanni Venegas from Colombia. And um, the reason we did it, 
is because we thought that that would give us an opportunity to make nationals. And it worked out. Um, we're not going to do an import this year because I've got 13 players now. I don't need one. We're not going to go D1. I hope not. <laughs> but the bottom line is uh, I, I see the value of both sides of it. And getting Nationals experience to my six other players last year was invaluable. And we wouldn't have made it without the import. So how long did you have the import with you? Like, was he with you all um, season? No, he, he made two trips. One, the first one, I believe, for two and a half months. And the last one just for three weeks. Um, it was the three weeks of sectionals and nationals. And gotcha. then and he went home. And he's a national player for Columbia. And they wanted him to come back right away. So, Dave, like your team, Detroit, you guys are in the middle of the heartland. You guys are looking at a possible D2 bid. Would you guys even consider bringing in an international player at this point? Uh, we've talked to people about it. But the people who are at the classification level of the guys that would be coming in don't want to give up playtime. Sure. You know, we could really use a low pointer. I've got one low pointer. He's a point five. Everybody else is one and a half or higher. And my one and a half plays above his classification. So, you know, if I could get a low pointer in, I could probably do that. We talked to one at one point. But at the time, we had somebody who was going to be given up playtime who wasn't interested in it. He was a key player for us. So um, we, we've talked, like I said, we talked about it, but 750 bucks for a team that doesn't have any money too. That's something else to think about. Uh, I think it's a topic that'll continue to be a conversation piece, but I think it's something that we'll continue to watch and, and see what happens with it. Just one more example. Terry Vineyard coached Tampa generals and TPUSA back in the 90s, up until the early O's, I believe. No, he was gone by 2000. What I'm getting at is he coached Team Australia to the finals with one real legit high pointer in Brad Duberley. And they went within one point of beating Team USA in um, the Paralympics in 2000. And that was the first time I think we saw... And by the way, Terry was also instrumental in bringing in the first import back in 95. That was really the first time that we saw, wow, our structure and knowledge went to a different country and almost beat us. So next up, uh, I'd like to bring up the topic of international classification. So something to think about is that there are classifications for every player that plays in the United States Quad Rugby Association. It's coordinated with the, uh, the players' uh, natural abilities along with how they play on the court. And that class follows them throughout, uh, throughout the season and every tournament they play at. But when a player gets to that elite status and they're playing on the international level, they get a different whole classification. Sometimes it matches up with their USQRA classification, but sometimes it doesn't. And I think there's been a lot of controversy over the last few years talking about that. Uh, an example would be Chuck Aoki. Chuck Aoki is a 3.5 domestically, but 3.0 uh, internationally. We're going to have Chad Cohn on here later. He's a 1.5 domestically, but a 1.0 internationally. So 
we're going to ask Chad about that, but let's start off with you, Dave. What do you think is the cause of the discrepancy between the two? Well, the, officially, the rules are the same. We generally adopt any changes they make at the international level. But for some reason, the implementation is different. You see some people that are higher, some people that are lower internationally. And most people attribute that to the ability to spend more time with the player. You know, when you're at a tournament here in the USQRA, people come in just before it's time to play the night before. There's not a lot of time for those classifiers to go through all these people and and sit with them and figure out the difference between what's function and what's training. And I think internationally, they're doing this over the course of six or seven days. They have a lot more opportunity to really sit with the player, mess around with, you know, their finger function, their trunk function, and anything else that they might need to look at in order to determine where a guy fits. And they maybe they do it better, but they certainly don't do it the same because we see it so often. Yeah, I also think that that's absolutely accurate, what Dave just said. However, um, I'm going to give a little historical perspective. Um, when I first got classified internationally, my classification matched was 0. 0.5 back in 1992. And the USQRA had just come up with the 0. 0.5 increment classification system. Prior to that, it was ones, twos, and threes. And that's it. And it was still eight points on the court. And I'll tell you straight up, it wasn't fair. I knew that I was going against guys that, as a one, that had way more function than I did. And you could see it in every classification, a huge discrepancy from the bottom to the top of that number. When it went from 0.5 to 3.5, things got a lot fairer, in my opinion. I actually went down. I went to a 0.5. And many of my teammates at the time on the Berkeley Quadzilla team went up. So they went from 2 to 2.5 or 3 to 3.5, etc. And we had a hard time fielding a team. But then we go overseas to play. Team USA gets together. And, of course, at the tryout, you already know what your USQRA classification is. But we hadn't been international yet. So we got over there and got looked at. And almost everybody stayed exactly the same. Nowadays, it seems that the international classifications are slightly lower in terms of skill and number. And you just mentioned both Chuck Aoki and Chad Cohn are one point, no, a half a point less when they go international. And then you got a guy like Tim Vixay who went international briefly because Timmy went from uh, being a 0.5 in the U.S. And I was in the classification room when that was determined. Um, as his coach, and he goes overseas, and he becomes a one. And that was, I was, let's just say I was a little surprised. But I guess the point I'm making is I think there's definitely a difference. Historically, I believe, in the last 20 years, I think it's a little more watered down in international classifications. But I don't know enough about it to say this is the reason. I do know that it seems like this could be part of all of the um, parity and equity we have between different countries now, though. I think some of their classifications, they come over. I'll give you an, another example. 
Leon Jorgensen from Denmark is now a 2-5. And he was a 3 when I was with him three or four years ago. Maybe there's some functional loss. I'm not sure. But um, a lot of people internationally are lower than they would be here in the U.S. Curie. There's something else that we're missing here, and that is that if you get classed lower, the chances that you're going to make that national squad and compete again are pretty good. If you get classed higher, you have there is a, a path to protect the classification. Team USA is not going to take you if you're classed too high. And you may never get another opportunity to get that classification done correctly. So when we talk about the possibility of adopting an international classification in the USQRA, there are guys who have never won't well, never get the opportunity to get their class re-looked at because they don't get to go international again. They did it one time and now they're penalized by that classification forever. I think another point in this, yeah, just to scaffold on what you guys just said, and if you don't have one, and I mean a very high functioning triple amp or somebody who has normal cardio and a full trunk. If you don't have one of those guys, you are not going to compete at that highest level. And I also believe what that does for spinal cord injured classifications is it sort of drops them down. For instance, Josh Wheeler is a 2.5. He used to be a three years ago in the United States. Um, three, five at one point. Yeah, 3.5 when he started. I think you're right. But he's a very, very valuable 2.5. That number is very friendly for Team USA. And he's, without doubt, one of the stars of that team. With that said, um, how many other spinal cord injury high pointers are there that you go, okay, that guy is a star in his lineup? There's not very many. It's changed. Well, is that about the trunk? I think it's about the Yes, it's about the trunk Trunk. and international players. Trunk makes so much more of a difference than hands do. Because really all hands get you is uh, better catching and passing. But if you do not have to take the ball out of your lap, it doesn't matter what your hands look like. If you can go up and down the court, nobody can touch you. Turn your chair without touching your wheels. You're going to dominate. Yeah, it's a big deal. I agree. All right, a more historical perspective. Steve Pate and Angela Mongiovi, both Hall of Famers, uh, both 3.5s, one polio, one Guillain-Barre, both had full trunk and dominated back in the day before we saw all the triple amps coming across. And then another name, Dom Clemens was a deuce in, um, in Minnesota, but before the new classification, when they didn't consider trunk, he was a one, and I had to chase that guy around the court, and he had full trunk, and it wasn't pretty. It, 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 he was dominant. He won the MVP at Nationals as a class one, and the next year they changed the system. So we've already done a lot of talking about international players, and we've talked about uh, classing system, but something that we haven't talked about is residency rules and development of young players for Team USA. And I think that a few people might want to know what the residency rules say right now. What, what they pretty much say is that you've got to 
play for the teams near where you live. The residency rules have been tightened over the last few years, with an exception of Oscar Mike being able to pull players from all around the league. So how are we supposed to develop players when there's no system in place to bring all those folks into to one spot and to have them get coaching on a level that may be higher or play with players that may be more experienced than what they have on their current teams. What do we do for these players and what do we do for Team USA? It seems that over the last several years, we've we've felt the pressure from international teams across the world, Japan, Australia, Great Britain, all are developing great programs. How do we keep up and how do we remain dominant? And I think a lot of it has to do with fostering talent and and bringing it to Team USA. So, Dave, I uh, I know that this is a touchy subject for uh, a commissioner to talk about, but what do you think that we do about this? Well, you know, the, the residence rule conversation has been very much about what we want as a league and what players want from at least as a general rule, is they want people to play where they live. And you are allowed to move if you want to. Obviously, that's not an option for many people. Um, but what we haven't had at the table is the conversation about how we support Team USA and their development of players. You know, they're, obviously, teams get upset when you poach their one good player and they were going to be good finally. You know, uh, I, th- I know, Mike, if you were to Get find a guy who's who made your team now edge of D one, top of D two. You wouldn't want to lose that guy. Yeah. But if that guy is going to help Team USA. Is your team the best place for him to do that? And yes. If he doesn't live 150 miles from you. He lives far enough away where you're the closest team, but he can't get to a practice, and he has trouble with money to get to tournaments so that he can qualify for his game so he can get an invite to the USA training camp. I don't know what the answer is, but I feel like the conversation that USA has been left out of this conversation. And I think that we need to have that conversation whether it changes something or not, it's, it's, it's worth having a conversation. about. Chris. Well, I think the 150-mile rule is absolutely essential. Um, I know that in California, at least, in the Pacific Division, um, it's a very long state. And uh, there's only teams in Northern California and Southern and not in between. So it's very well-defined. However, in other places, I'm guessing in the Midwest, it's not necessarily that way. And there are probably opportunities to play with teams that are a little further away, but you're still within within the legal uh, geographic limit. So with all that said, um, back to development. Uh, my first thing is, what happened to Team Force? It's gone. And just like three years ago, we were working on developing younger players and I believe the team that I was assistant coach, along with Dave Cerruti, head coach, Team Force 2014, 
there's now three players, I believe, on Team USA. Um, and we had 14 to start with. But the newer blood that's come up in the last four years, how are we locating them, getting them the proper training and um, and conditioning and different uh, skills, et cetera, to develop all of that and get them to the next level? I don't think we're doing a great job right now. And I can't speak for all that's going on at Lakeshore with Team USA. And maybe they're getting everybody in there that they necessarily need to. But I think we're the biggest draw of any country in in rugby. And we should have more people being developed all the time. Yeah, I, I think that... And... And I'm gonna go ahead and and defend Coach Gumby, uh, Coach Gumbert here. Is that I think that a lot of people get on him for pulling talent to his team, and you know having people move across the country working within the residency rules. But how else is he going to get players to develop, uh, develop and get ready for Team USA? And well, you. They constantly are saying, in order to be the best, you have to play against the best. Yeah. So if you're going to compete at that level, you have to go play with a D1 team. Yeah. So a perfect example of this, guys, is Lee Fredette, class one, played on Team Force, at the time lived in New York, was playing on a above average but really mediocre team in New York. Suddenly, and by the way, you can't teach speed, and that kid is really quick and really quick learner and i loved working with him he was a sponge he wanted to learn everything and he ramped up quickly but part of that was because he then moved to san diego and now he's in arizona and he's playing with some of the best players in the united states and guess what those guys are together going to team usa and they already have chemistry because he plays with them on a on his club team so it's just one example of a guy that's done some moving around, but he's made it to that that top level. Yeah, I I think going back to to Team Force, I I really think that we should find a way of bringing it back. I mean, that's where you get the best of both worlds. You get your your players that don't abandon their teams. They get developed. They get to actually bring skills back to their teams. So it's actually reverse development right so um, and so and at the same time on that mike dave who who paid for team team force and is it really just about money now or what are the issues when i became commissioner i had looked into why force ran and how it ran and how it was funded and i could not find how that happened i have no idea how it happened i have some guesses but uh, there's no paperwork. There's no paper trail. Um, we did our best to fund what we could and just weren't able to get enough funding to keep that program going. Um, I know that USA is doing developmental camps at this point. We would love to be able to get a team force together again. I think it's a great thing. I saw some really good opportunities for young players who maybe never get that chance, but also never had any coaching at that level. And they got something that they would never have any other way. 
Right. And the opportunity to travel internationally and play. So um, there were grants that we got uh, a few years back that we were going to use for other other purposes, but we're, we were told could only be used for player development. And I wonder if that grant money, you know, however large amount we get, could go towards a new team force. Uh, you know, flying players out to uh, be with Team USA coaches. I think it's got to come from both sides because Team USA can't pay for it all by itself. Uh, USQRA can't pay for it all by itself. So how about we have, uh, you know, more collaboration? We're we're sending players to developmental camps, and I think that Team USA can have coaches come to do Team Force and go abroad and stuff like that. But really, it is about finding the funding for it. And I think that um, other than some some pretty big things that are are high on the list, um, this should be in the the top three things that we as the U.S. Curie needs to do. I agree. Because otherwise, it's... Yeah, finding the right grant is a challenge. Yeah. They're very specific about what you can use the money for. And when you write your proposal, we would need to write it so that that was something that we intended to use the money for so we could find out that that was something they were willing to use the money for. Just a quick close on this. We're the richest country in the world, and probably our wheelchair rugby program operates with one of the lowest budgets. That's something to think about right there. (laughs) It's the bottom line. So right now we've got uh, Chad Cohn from Team USA. We've got our man uh, Cookie over here who's going to tell us a little bit more about our esteemed guest, and then we'll start asking some questions. So Cookie, fire it off. Welcome aboard Chad Cohn, CC. He has been playing rugby now 14 years. Nine of those 14 he's been on Team USA. He's been on the podium each and every one of those years. And three national championships – the pride of Tucson, Chad Cohn. Hey, thank, thank you, gentlemen, for having me tonight. We're glad to have you, man. So let's start this off. You know, you guys, uh, Team USA is coming off uh, a heck of a tournament out in Australia. How are your feelings about uh, bronze, and what's next for Team USA? Yeah, it was a it was a it was a good tournament. You know, we had we had a lot of fun in Australia. You know, obviously, we didn't come home with with what we wanted. You know, anytime you're wearing those letters and, and those colors, you know, we, we hold ourselves to a high standard and expect nothing but but coming home with that, that gold. So that, that was uh it was disappointing. But, you know, I mean it's it's a stepping stone for us. Our our long term goal here is obviously bringing it home uh, at Tokyo. Um, and so that's kinda what we're you know, our eyes are set on. Obviously we're not gonna look past, you know, our our pair of panzer zonals coming up this next year you know this is with being said with you know as long as i'm hopefully a part of it but uh so yeah it's kind of you know overall disappointing but hey i mean japan japan deserves it they played absolutely amazing they've, they've come a long way so you know couldn't have couldn't have uh lost it to a better group of guys and girl do you think coach kevin Orr made a big difference in this japan in comparison to the Japans you've played in the past, yeah, I do. Um, I think that he had them 
definitely had them more prepared. Me, Japan. I mean, it, I mean, let's be honest. You know, gold, the gold medal match was sloppy. I mean, a lot of lot of turnovers. Um, obviously, both ways, but the adjustment they made was their their key offense. And they also really didn't, you know, they didn't beat themselves. And and they've done, you know, they've done that before. Where in the past, it's like, you know, they can they've been in a good good position to win a game and just kind of choke it away. But I mean, I, obviously, everyone's been there, but. How do you guys get to see the film? Do you get together and do it? Do you each have an iPad? What? what how do you do that? Uh, it varies. Uh, I mean, we all we all watch film. I mean, we're all you know obviously in love with this sport. Otherwise, we wouldn't be as committed as we are. Uh, um, so we all watch film on our own. But you know, we're given we're given certain uh, assignments from from our coaches, what to watch and and what exactly we're looking at. You know. Who's inbounding? You know what what side of the court they like to set up on that kind of stuff. You know, just a couple examples. But we do have a team. You know, we do have team kind of. I guess you could say Skype meetings. Yeah. Okay. So you're not watching at the tournament per se together, but when you're on your own, you watch and then you get together and talk about it. No, we well we absolutely will watch together at the tournament. You know, if we have okay. if we have time. But you know, for us. We'll watch if we can, but more importantly, obviously, nutrition, recovery, um, right. sleep, all, all that's more important than us actually watching the game live because we know that we'll be able to be able to watch it on film. So, so I have a question for you. How much yeah. how much has that recovery nutrition component changed over the past few years? Because I see a lot of stuff on on social media that you guys are really taking care of yourselves after after games and everything. Is it something? that you've seen evolve over the last few years or is it something that's just always been there, but it's just getting more attention now? Uh, I guess I would say a, a good combination of both. Um, recovery has always been there. It's been, and it's always been a big part. I think that especially the last couple of years, you know, with what, with what I've noticed, even with, you know, with myself, including is that we all have really bought into it. Because it is, it is huge, and it is, <laughs> you know, as as big as working out and eating healthy is. I mean, recovery is just as important, if not more important. If I can intervene, twenty years ago we didn't have any of that. We showed up, we played ball, and we slept and ate whatever they had there. <laughs> we didn't have. Things have changed, and it's for the good for all of us. Believe me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but it's like you know, it's like anything in life. Everything's evolving, right? Um, right. Technology plays a plays a big part in it. So uh, we're just we're fortunate enough to have you know have these companies um, that that make this stuff that we can take advantage of to to be the best we can. That's awesome. Internationally, you're a 1.0. Domestically, you're a 1.5. You've been through all the classifications. Uh, both domestic and international. What's different between these two systems? What do you notice? Uh, that's a loaded question. It's it is it is that's good stuff. Um, so I would say the biggest difference is the amount of time that internationally they get to spend working with an athlete, watching an athlete play. You know, you you have so you come to a USQRA tournament and there's it's three days, 
really only two, right? I mean, the third day, there's not a whole lot going on. Um, so really, they have two days to, to try to classify an individual. So it, it's tough. I mean, it's a limited amount of time, right? You go to an international tournament, and they have damn close to a week to do the test and then watch the individual play. So I would say that's the biggest difference. Again, there's there's players out there that will uh, cheat, not show what they can do, and it. So I think it makes it real tough on the classifiers to to truly pinpoint what works and how well it works, uh, the strength of it. Yeah. Okay, so you were born and raised in Arizona, right? Yes, sir. Okay. A lot of guys have come to Arizona to play ball. A lot of guys are from Arizona. But for about the last five years, Arizona's kind of cornered the market on on D1, uh, with except a hiccup here or two. And might be different in Colorado this year. We'll see. And but with that said, what's going on? I could name seven or eight USA guys and Phoenix slash Tucson guys. They're just top shelf. What 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 do you attribute that to? What's going on? The weather. I mean, I was so thinking, yeah. You know, there's, there's year round, right? Yeah, there's there's three months out of the year where it's like. And that's not even here in Tucson. I mean, more like two, two and a half. But Phoenix, you got five months, I guess, probably out of the year where it's, man, it's brutal. It's brutal. It's it's hot. Uh, but it's very accessible. It's flat. Um, you know, obviously, both, uh, both programs, uh, Phoenix and, and our program, uh, have a lot to offer. Um, you know, our program is a his university program before that, you know, different circumstances, but, um, just a lot to offer it. So weather, um, the programs itself. And then within the programs, you have individuals that were either, um, you know, on, on team USA that, that played at a really high level and were very successful. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, or players that, sorry, that were on Team USA, or players that are on Team USA, um, you know, that obviously haven't quite had the success because uh, we're missing we're missing a color in, in, our, in our medals. But um, I, I would say that those are, those are kind of the factors. Um, with How about it. just the fact that it's easy to recruit because you've already got great programs going on? Yeah, and that's, well, that's kind of what I meant, right, by, by the programs themselves. You know, ability 360. You know, the Phoenix Heat. Man, I mean, I, Scott. Scott has done a, a phenomenal job, and and he'll continue to do that until until he calls it calls it quits. I was gonna say it's funny too because early on, um, early on in my career, you know, Derek Derek Helton and I, um, you know, we we knew what we wanted to do with rugby and where we wanted to be, and and we weren't quite sure how to get there. And so early on, we we discussed it, and we were like, "All right, is is Tucson the best fit for us?" You know, we have we have a couple options right now. Uh, our options were Phoenix, you know, to learn from one of the best that's ever played the game, right, with Scott, or go to Texas and and play with play with the gentleman that that is still my my head coach for USA. But we decided, you know what, let's try to build something here. 
it just it kind of worked out and um chuck and you know aoki ended up coming out here and we had our import travis brown and travis anderson our point five at the time was a phenomenal point five gabe gabe nurkin ended up being our our coach so yeah, I mean the the programs themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that that's a huge factor. But like I said, weather. I think weather plays a big part. Um, accessibility plays a big part. You know, you mentioned a lot of a lot of names that people know. Is there a guy that you modeled your game after, or who who you learned the most from as you came up into the international level of the sport? It's a great question. Uh, Model my game after no. I I uh I try I tried to learn as much as I could from Scott. Um you know, and I and I think that he he tried to teach me as much as he could. I think you know, there was a competition competition factor that played played into it, you know, early on. You know, you go to USA tryouts and it's you know, it's like, hey, this guy's kinda of been my mentor and then helped me out, and then I get there and he's like, Hey, you're my competition, bro. But uh I did. I learned a lot from Scott. Uh, you know, I mentioned Derek's name because him and I, man, we went to every camp, clinic, pickup. You know, whether it was, uh, you know, going out to San Diego for their pickup games, or going to Texas for their. I mean, we we went everywhere we could. Um, and but no, I mean, I kind of. I guess when I came up, I was kind of. A, I guess kind of a different breed when it when it you know when it came to low pointers because I was there wasn't wasn't really a low pointer that quite had my speed and so I think that that was that was probably the biggest difference but and that was that was a huge that was a big uh, a big moment in my career too when you know I had a conversation with my coaches and I just said hey let me let me play my game and and not try to not have you try to make me play someone else's game and and then see what happens and um it ended up working out my working out in my favor i guess you could say but no i honestly dave i try to take bits and pieces from everyone that i watched whether it was a, a 0.5 or a 3.5 and and just try to learn and i still to this day i still do you know i mean i'm still trying to um still trying to perfect my craft and everything i do so Always room for improvement. Always. <laughs> well, and I think the biggest thing that I see from most of you guys in USA, and in particular, um, that may you and Scott have in common, and that is that you make the guys around you better. And that I, I really think, you know, especially as a low pointer, you know, I I was talking to you earlier about how how a great low pointer makes any high pointer look better, especially one that's moves at my speed <clears throat> but really this the fact being on the court makes everybody around you better i mean that's something that that takes you to that level and uh, right. i think it's worth at least mentioning that you guys both are in that category for sure well i, I think i think too dave like you have to you have to be able to play multiple different styles right and and i you know i got to give credit to as much as I don't want to, uh, I have to give credit to Joe Delagrave. Man, I mean, we've been playing together forever, and there's still times where he's like, damn it, Chad, slow down. Where are you going? And, you know, it's i got to give credit to him because it, it's, it's made me, you know, 
it's made me play a little bit slower. And this, I mean, this isn't just last year. This, you know, this goes back years, but um, it's made me slow down a little bit. And and that wasn't necessarily my game. You know, my game was picking, you know, picking for Chuck or picking for picking for Derek. That might have been a little bit quicker. You know, some of those guys, you know, Will grew or, and so he, I, I'll give him that credit where he helped develop my game at a slower pace. Um, so now it's, you know, I feel comfortable as a low pointer where I can play as a, you know, I can play speed, I can play slow, you know, it's all obviously chair positioning, but yeah. I got a, I got a couple low pointers. I'd like you to teach that too. <laughs> no because problem. they always get away from me and then I, you know, cause I'm never going to catch up to them if they get, once they get separation. So. Well, D- Hey Dave, I'll tell you the same thing I told Joe. <laughs> Why don't you work a little bit harder and get faster? <laughs> uh, well, the irony of that is, Chad, how many low pointers in the history of the game I have got to slow down and play within myself? Very few. <laughs> it's nice to have that fifth gear, isn't it? Nice. So, it, and I know how hard you work, so I'm, I'm not, you know, disparaging that at, at all. <laughs> I, I've seen it all. I, I know so, what you mean. I have another question for you, Chad. Yeah. What's your feeling about imports at this point? Okay, we've we've had a number of years um, where now national championships have been won with an import. Everybody's got one that's at that top level of D1, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how do you feel about that? Do you think it's something that is good for the game? Do you think it's something that we should all agree to stop doing or just whatever if you've got the money and the place for the guy to stay and you can recruit him go for it uh i have mixed emotions you know um i mean one i'll I'll just say is it legal to do right so right now it is (laughs) yeah so um teams are gonna do it and and there's there's only a couple teams in the states I mean, let's let's be honest. Let's look at let's look at how many highly competitive high pointers are out there in the states. They can play they can play D one ball at the top level. I mean, how how many do we have right now? Yeah, I'd say four. So there's right. four. Yeah, so there's four, and that, and I think that that's where that's you know. The argument is, well, we need it's because we need to develop our high pointers. Well, I mean, you know, it's I like I've had conversations with Paco about it, right? And Paco, um, like, hey, let this motivate you, right? Like, learn you can learn from them, maybe you can. I mean, you get to practice against them. I I think that the international, the import, you know, especially high pointers, do they benefit from it? Absolutely. You know, because they're playing against uh, the biggest pool of rugby players in the world. But at the same time, like, I don't know, like practicing against Daisuke, I feel like I benefit from it. Sure. You know, I feel like I'm learning the little little twitches that he has, which way, I mean, you can watch as much film as you want actually playing, though, against that individual. Real time, real speed, you benefit from. So uh, eventually, eventually it'll go away, I'm sure. And I have no problem with that either. I, I just think that as long as it's a rule, every, people are going to do it. And what about the arg- what about the argument that having imports over the last, well, let's just say ten years, maybe a little longer, 
coincides with the rest of the world catching up to us and now perhaps surpassing us because they're practicing with our best teams all the time and playing in high-level tournaments in the USQRA. Um, sure, you could sure you could say that. How how many years did Briley play in the states? Three, you know that? maybe. I'm not sure. Three. Okay. Or two. Oh, yeah. I'm not positive. Yeah, two for sure. I mean, how long is how long how long has it been since he's played here? I mean, he it is it, still the best player in the world. Still the best player right. in the world, right? Right. Ar- arguably, anyway. Um, you know, I mean. <laughs> Jim coming out here, sure. I mean, yeah, absolutely. He, you know, he learned the game, and you know, GB GB runs Phoenix's offense basically. I mean, that's. Um, I mean, well, doesn't that make our sport better and more fun to watch as when other teams advance to the level yeah. that we're playing? Yeah. So, and I think that's kind of where I was going. Like, it, it does make it more fun to watch and and further advance. But I think too, like, the world has functioned. They have functioned. Right? <laughs> so regardless whether they're coming here or not, they have function. And that's that's something that we don't really have. And so if function wasn't here and we weren't I mean, because really what we're playing against Chuck and Chuck and Corey and I mean and Anthony when it comes to function, right? If I'm missing someone, I'm I apologize. Sorry guys. But so we would never play against function. Right, if they weren't here, so how would we how to how would we know how to play function? I mean, I think there's two sides to it. Like, absolutely, by having import players come here, is that making them better? Absolutely, but I also feel like it's making us better because import players have low pointers to play against. Right? I mean, Ike and Yike and Shin they play against each other right. throughout the year. You know, Riley and and Bat, uh, Riley and Bond, they play against each other throughout the year. You know, Jim and and their and and Phipps, their function guys, they play through, against each other throughout the year. So, I don't know, like who is truly benefiting from it more? It's a good question. I think there's a lot of different perspectives, different ways to look at it. And like you said, it's legal, and so we're going to be doing it until it's no longer legal. As far as I'm concerned, like you. You play within the rules to win the game, right? And everyone here wants to win, <laughs> right? Like, you know, obviously, yeah. Big, big picture for certain individual individuals is to go win a gold medal, to to be the best in the world, not not in the USQRA, but um, to be the best in the world, you still have to play against the best. And so, bringing bringing the best in, I don't know. Well, I'll, I'll take it back a few years. Once upon a time. There were no imports just because no one had thought of it yet, right? And the first time I saw an import was 1995-ish, and it was a deuce from England, and he was excellent. And then things started coming in, and over the years, it seems like if you don't have one and you don't have a high-functioning import, you're not going to compete at top level of D1 Um, unless it's an Olympic year and people just aren't bringing them or aren't sending them. So – I agree with you. As long as it's legal and we all want to win, it's going to be a part of our game. Yep. Absolutely. You've given us a solid 45 (laughs) minutes of your time. We really appreciate it, man. Yeah, absolutely, Chad. Appreciate it, bro. Thank Uh, you, Chad. 
No, it's my pleasure, guys. Absolutely. Let me know. Let me know if you want me back. <laughs> Absolutely. No, we don't want you back, but we love you. <laughs> I like it, Cookie. I like it. All right, brother. So we've talked about a lot of things this week. I think that uh, we're going to wrap it up here. What we can do is ask you guys who are who are listening to this podcast to leave on our Facebook page any questions, any comments that you have. Continue the conversation. We want you guys to be part of this too. This is something that it's not just a bunch of folks that are talking about the sport of wheelchair rugby, something that we all love. We want you the guys to be involved too. So guys, gals, all across the league, all across the country, let's let's hear what you got to say about our sport and what do you got to say about these conversations. I would also love to have people listening to this. Please suggest topics to us and also possible uh, guest speakers because we'd like to get people that you want to hear. Yeah, and what you want to hear about. Awesome. Well, thank you both very much. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Chris. Let's wrap it up here, and we'll talk to you guys next time. Right on. Take care, guys. See ya. Ciao.